Um, let's go ahead and begin this morning uh, by praying together. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we're grateful for um, the way in which you dwell with us um, faithfully, constantly, um, even in space and time that you um, set apart um, days and years and weeks. And even, Father, you give us this day, the Lord's Day, um, each week um, as a means by which we might dwell with you, um, that we might be in your presence together, that you might give us all that we need. Uh, we pray that you bless us this morning, even as we prepare for worship, um, as we consider um, what your word teaches about, the, about art, about the, the things that human beings make with their hands and their minds. Um, we thank you for this gift, Father, and pray that you would guide us as we consider um, its meaning in light of your truth. We pray in Christ, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Um, so we are continuing a series that we began, of course, um, in, in late November and um, carried through the first part of December and now we're picking up again. Um, every year we do, um, or try to do at least, an old book as a church. We try to look at something that is a classic of Christian theology or devotional literature and uh, that was written in a different period in time and consider it um, with one another. We, we feel like this gives us a real advantage of understanding um, uh, because something written from a different era will have different preconceived notions than we do and will be able to speak to us in a new way. And so the work that we've been considering um, this uh, section um, is um, lectures on Calvinism by Abraham Kuyper. These lectures were delivered in 1898 at Princeton Seminary um, by, uh, by Abraham Kuyper. And they're really for him an expression of what it means to not only be Calvinist in the sense of someone who's a descendant of Calvin, but to be part of the, what we, I would call the classical Protestant tradition. Uh, what does it mean to be thoughtfully Christian and Protestant in um, what for him at that time was this new uh, modern age, an age that we are still, I would say, continuing to experience and live in the midst of in many ways. Um, and so we've looked at Kuiper's, he's talked about different things. He's talked about Christianity as a, as a life system, uh, this idea that there's a worldview associated with Calvinism or Christianity talked about um, what it means for politics, what it means for religion, what it means for science. And we come today um, to the topic of Calvinism and art, Calvinism and art. Um, and I was really excited to be able to work through this chapter. I, many of you know this about me, but the arts have always been deeply important to me personally. Um, I've spent um, a great deal of my life actually in uh, professional study, or not professional, academic study of literature, um, of poetry in particular. Um, both as an undergraduate and then in graduate school. Aside from my seminary training, I also pursued a degree in creative writing and poetry. Um, I think that the arts matter, that language matter, that, that beauty matters. And it matters not just because um, there's some aesthetic value in it, but there's actually something deeply Christian about creating beauty. And that's something that um, certainly all of us, there's a spectrum of gifting and interest in the arts. And yet I think as Christians, it's important for all of us even if we're not a quote-unquote artist ourselves, um, to think about the value of the arts, the value of art in general, and why um, God has given us these gifts and what it means for us as a church to support artistic endeavor, artistic exploration, and creation. So I'm really excited we get to go through this chapter together. I think it's really helpful in the way that Kuiper talks about these things. Um, you know, at, at times, of course, there has been, um, I think, a lack of support in the church for the arts um, whether um, for the arts in general or for artistic excellence, right? Sometimes uh, we think that if we put the word Christian next to art, it just sort of 
you know, makes it good. And that's not always the case, right? Um, um, the, to be artistic is not just simply to append the word Christian to something, um, but actually there's, a, there's a, a pursuit of beauty that matters and that the church has not always valued, I think, in the way that it, it should. And we want uh, certainly that to be the case here as we think about our life together at Colleyville. So, so Kuiper is going to jump in, and, and towards the beginning of his lecture, he's going to talk about the importance of art. You'll see that on your handout, the first section there. He says, understand that art is no fringe that is attached to the garment and no amusement that is added to life. And this is interesting because, remember, he's been talking about Christianity or Calvinism as a worldview, as a life system, religion, politics, science, and then his fifth lecture, he gets to art, right? Art. Why, why is art a part of that conversation with politics and religion and science and a worldview? He says, understand that art is no fringe that is attached to the garment, no amusement that is added to life, but a most serious power in our present existence, right? He's, he's affirming the importance of art um, as a part of life, a part of life which the scriptures must speak to. Um, and therefore, its principal variations must remain in their artistic expression, a close relation with the principal variations of our entire life. And since without exception, these principal variations of our entire human existence are dominated by our relation to God, right? This is the argument he's been making throughout these lectures that we have to see religion and politics and science and indeed our whole view of life as something that is under the domain of God himself. What does the Lord tell us about these things? That should inform our approach to them. He argues the same is true for art. He says, would it not be both a de degradation and an underestimation of art if you were to imagine all the ramifications into which the art trunk divides itself to be independent of the deepest root which all human life has in God. He's saying we should not degrade the arts, we should not underestimate them. We should say rather that our view of the arts should be informed just as in every other area of our life by God himself, by our relationship to him. Okay, so he's, he's arguing for this, again, this sort of comprehensive worldview that encompasses even how we think about beauty, even how we think about music, how we think about the visual arts or literature, that Christianity um, has something to say about that as well. So this next section of the lecture, he talks about how does Calvinism view art? How does, how does um, this tradition, this Reformed Protestant tradition, which he stands in and which we stand in, how does it view art? And there are times, I think, where uh, the, that Reformed Protestant tradition has not always valued art in the way that it should, but he argues, Kuiper does, that it should. It should, actually, historically, it has. He says, the lawful use of art was not opposed, but encouraged and even recommended by Calvin himself. And his own words readily prove this. And he goes back into Calvin's commentaries and his writings on the scripture to show this. He says, when the scripture mentions the first appearance of art, does anybody know where that is? In Genesis? Nope, Genesis, even further, way back before the beginning of the time. Genesis 4, right? Jubal in the line of Cain. It's really interesting. You get this line of Cain, and one of the things we're told about Jubal is that he was the one who, who made um, harps and lyre, and, and that the, the gift of music was given to humanity through this man, Jubal, who was actually part of the line of Cain, which is really fascinating. Uh, when the scriptures mention the first appearance of art, this is in Genesis 4, 
And the tents of Jubal, who invented the harp and organ, and the organ there is an older translation of the King James, Calvin emphatically reminds us that this passage treats of the excellent gifts of the Holy Spirit, right? That the, the reason Jubal had these gifts is because of the, uh, the, the Holy Spirit. He declares that in the artistic instinct, God had enriched Jubal and his posterity with rare endowments. And he frankly states that these inventive powers of art prove most evident testimonies of the divine bounty. More emphatically still, he declares, this is Calvin, in his commentaries on Exodus, and this would have been during the creation of the temple or the tabernacle at that time, right? As the the artists in Israel got together and, and adorned the tabernacle as the Lord commanded them. He says that Calvin said all the, here that all the arts come from God and are to be respected as divine inventions. According to Calvin, these precious things of the natural life we owe originally to the Holy Ghost. In all liberal arts, in the most as well as in the least, as, as well as in the least important, the praise and glory of God are to be enhanced. The arts, says he, have been given to us for our comfort. In this, our depressed state of life, they react against the corruption of life and nature by the curse. This is going to be fundamental to the argument that Kuiper is making, that somehow the arts are not just given to us for solace. They're actually given to us as a means to push back against the curse in imaginative ways, to imagine a world other than the one in which we live. That this, for Calvin, is actually one of the primary reasons for the arts. Um, to the, 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 the idea that the arts are given to us not merely to give us solace in this world, but help us to imagine a different world, a world that is not the way that this one is, marked by sin and the fall. He, that is Calvin, Kuiper goes on to say, exults in music. And if you know anything about Calvin, you know this is true, that a lot of the reformation that he brought to Geneva was actually a musical reformation. Um, He restored singing to the people and he wrote tunes himself and put together the Genevan Psalter. This was a fundamental thing for Calvin. He that is Calvin exults in music as a marvelous power to move hearts and to ennoble tendencies and morals. Among the most excellent favors of God for our recreation and employment, music occupies in his mind the highest rank. And even when art condescends to become the instrument of mere entertainment to the masses, right? Not only in church, but even outside of the church. Um, He asserts, Calvin asserts, that this sort of pleasure should not be denied to them. The pleasure of music. And is there, I mean, that's certainly one of the greatest pleasures in life, right? Is music, song. We all know that and I think experience it um, in our daily lives. In view of all this, we may say that Calvin esteemed art and all its ramifications as a gift of God or more especially as a gift of the Holy Ghost. I think that's a really interesting argument, and I don't know if you've thought of that before, that, that art um, being connected especially to the work of the Spirit, um, and, and particular among the members of the Trinity, the persons of the Trinity. And that he fully grasped the profound effects worked by art upon the life of the emotions, that he appreciated the end for which art had been given, that by it we might glorify God and ennoble human life, and drank at the fountain of higher pleasures. So there's a, there's a sense, according to Kuiper, um, that art is given to us simply for pleasure, simply to drink at the rivers of delight, simply for enjoyment, which I think is a, a, a wonderful Christian argument that God cares about the arts in that way. And finally, and here's where Calvin really, or Kuiper really begins to outline his main argument. And finally, that so far from considering art as a mere imitation of nature, 
So art is not simply supposed to imitate the creation that God has made, to observe it and to somehow you know, record it in an artistic way. But rather, Calvin attributed to art the noble vocation, the noble vocation of disclosing to man a higher reality than was offered to us by this sinful and corrupted world. You see that argument he's making there? He's going to unpack it some more. That art is actually given to us to disclose to man a higher reality, a, a greater reality than the reality available to us in this sinful and corrupted world. That there's actually something that human beings can do as they make beautiful things with their hands and their minds and their voices that points to not just this world, but to another world, a greater world to come. So what is the purpose of art then, according to this perspective? Kuiper says this, he says, to go to direct to the heart of the question, we begin with Calvin's last saying, that art reveals to us a higher reality than is offered by this sinful world. You are familiar with the question already mentioned, whether art should imitate nature or should transcend it, right? Should art simply just imitate the natural world, the created world, or should it transcend it and go above it? He says in Greece, this is back in classical Greece, grapes were painted with such accuracy that birds were deceived by their appearance and tried to eat them. And this imitation of nature seemed the highest ideal to the Socratic school. Okay, so the, the, the classical ideal was to reflect nature in all of its detail, to accurately give it its glory and its beauty. But Calvin says, or Kuiper says that from a Christian perspective, from a Calvinist perspective, art is more than that. It's not simply meant to reflect the natural world back to us. It is the vocation of art, not merely to observe everything visible and audible, to apprehend it and to reproduce it artistically, right, with artifice, but much more to discover in those natural forms the order of the beautiful, I love that phrase, to discover in those natural forms the order of the beautiful, to discover the order of the beautiful, and enriched by this higher knowledge to produce a beautiful world that transcends the beautiful of nature. And this is what Calvin asserted, that the arts exhibit gifts which God has placed at our disposal now that as the sad consequence of sin, the real beautiful has fled from us. I really love the way that he talks about art there, that, that there's arts, the arts are kind of an exploration. Um, they're not merely a way to express yourself in some kind of way. They're not about self-expression primarily. Um, they're not just about observing the natural world and, and reproducing it in a, in a way that can be enjoyed and appreciated actually the arts are art artists are kind of explorers that they're searching for the order of the beautiful the true beauty um, that once inhabited this world in its full in a full way in a perfect way and has now fled from it that artists are sort of out there chasing the remnants of that beauty that they might uh, project it before us and hold it before us as a picture of the beauty that is to come i think that's a really fascinating um, description of what the arts are for um, from a Christian perspective, um, that they're, they're searching for this remnant, for this order of the beautiful, and, and seek to hold it before us. 
Um, were there extra handouts, Patrick? If anybody needs extra handouts, they're on the uh, sound booth, it looks like. Um, so just FYI, if you want one. So he says, and this is where he really kind of unpacks some of the ramifications of this. He says, art in our view of the world under this heading, and that's a, my creation, not his. Uh, he says, your decision here in terms of what is the meaning of art, what it's its purpose, and I think this is so profound. He does the same thing with science, but he does such a great job of sort of saying the assumptions you make about the world will have ramifications in the way that you think about your lives and your gifts and what you do uh, with them. Your decision here about the purpose of art depends entirely upon your interpretation of the world. If you are considering the world as the realization of the absolute good, then there is none higher, and art can have no other vocation than to copy nature. Right? If this world is all that there is, then art, what more can it do than copy nature? But if you confess that the world once was beautiful, but by the curse has become undone, and by a final catastrophe, right, some kind of divine intervention from outside, is to pass on to its full state of glory, excelling even the beautiful of paradise, then art has the mystical task, art has the mystical task of reminding us in its productions of the beautiful that was lost and of anticipating its perfect coming luster. So he says, if, if, you, if you believe that the world is, is not as it has always been and will always be, if you believe there was something that was true about the world that then changed because of human sin and will again change because of the intervention of grace of God and the redemption of all things, then as an artist, your calling becomes to point back to that beauty that inhabited the original creation that God called very good that has now in some sense become corrupted through the sin of humanity. And you'll point forward to the restoration of the beauty that God will bring, that'll be even greater than the original form. That the artist sort of stands between those two worlds and says, uh, this place that we inhabit now is not all that there is. There was once something that was better, and there will be something that is even more beautiful still to come. And so for the Christian artist points to both those worlds, and you can think about this in all sorts of ways, right? In terms of music, um, you know, if you, if you love Bach as I do, you know that when you hear a Bach cantata, right, you're, you're experiencing something that is not, not just reflective of creation and nature. It's pointing to something higher, more transcendent. You see this in, in paintings. You see this in literature. Um, you see this in all different forms of art, I think. This, what he's talking about here, this pointing back to something that was lost and pointing forward to something that will be restored in its fullness. <clears throat> he says, now this last mentioned instant is the Calvinistic confession. He says there's actually something distinctive about Calvinism itself that does this well. It realized that as Calvinism, more clearly than Rome, the hideous corrupting influences of sin, right? Because Calvinism takes sin seriously, it actually takes art seriously. And this led to a higher estimation of the nature of paradise and the beauty of original righteousness, right? That we actually have lost something, that we've lost something that was good and right and perfect and guided by this enchanting remembrance. I love that phrase that he comes up with. It's amazing to me how well Kuiper uses the English language, given that it was not his 
native tongue. He says, guided by this enchanting remembrance, Calvinism prophesied a redemption of outward nature also to be realized in the reign of celestial glory. From this standpoint, Calvinism honored art as a gift of the Holy Ghost, a gift of the Holy Spirit, and as a consolation in our present life, enabling us to discover in and behind this sinful life a richer and more glorious background. Standing by the ruins of this once so wonderfully beautiful creation, art points out to the Calvinists both the still visible lines of the original plan and what is even more, the splendid restoration by which the supreme artist and master builder will one day renew and enhance even the beauty of his original creation. So he was restating his point, just elaborating upon it, right? That art is looking back to that original beauty that the master creator made and for pointing forward to the beauty that he will, that he will make anew uh, when Jesus makes all things new um, in his uh, second coming and his renewal of all of creation. All right, any thoughts about this? I, wanna, this, I think this is, this is the core of what Kuiper is wanting to say about uh, Calvinism and art, that this is the purpose of art. He's going to unpack that in different ways in the remainder of the handout I have. But I just want to pause for a moment and just, I think this is the core of his argument. How does it strike you? Does it resonate? Does it make sense? you have questions, comments? Yes, Kim. Unpack that some. You want me to unpack it? What do you mean by the objective versus subjective? Right. No, I don't think so either. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know that he, I mean, he doesn't exactly address that question. Kim's asking about the, the debate with an art, whether there's some objectiveness to beauty or that's purely a subjective thing. Clearly, I think Cal, or Kuiper, by the way that he's arguing um, for this investigation of creation, I think, as a part of the artistic endeavor. Um, but you're investigating in a particular way with the understanding that it once was something that it is not any longer, and it will be something that it isn't now. Um, that there is an objectiveness to that, but there's also, I love the way he uses the word mystical. I think that's a really interesting, um, that there is a mystery here. There is, there is a, a a giftedness of the spirit that has to take place in order to be a true artist. Um, and so, yeah, so I think there's objective there, um, reality, but there's also some, there's also mystery. There's also something that's going on that only works within the individual as the spirit enables him to do it. Do you know what I mean? Um, so I don't know if that helps, but yeah, I think he, I don't think he's quite thinking about that question exactly, but he is answering it in a, in a different way, I think. I saw a hand up. Eric, did you have a hand up?
Yeah. So Eric is saying, what about, he's talking a lot about beauty, art as a, as a revealer of what is beautiful and good. Um, does art also not have a calling in Kuiper's view to reveal the hideous, the evil, the wicked, the sinful? And I, he does not discuss that explicitly in this chapter, as far as I can tell, um, in the, the way I think that you're describing. But I doubt that he would disagree with that. Um, I think that, you know, of course, this is, you know, Flannery O'Connor is a great example of someone who um, sought to, through the exploration of the grotesque, um, to help people realize um, both the horror of sin and wickedness and evil, as well as the surprising um, uh, uh, depth of grace and God's love and mercy. And so, so I think someone like O'Connor would probably talk more explicitly about what you're describing, but I don't think Kuiper would be opposed to it, certainly. Um, but he, yeah, he certainly is emphasizing more the art is, is uh, in a way for us to be reminded of what is true and good and beautiful. Yeah. But sometimes we need, as O'Connor you know, um, argued, the, the opposite of that in order to really grasp the, the realness of grace. Yes, sir, Jeremy. What distinction? Uh Yes. So I feel like we're kind of we don't have to we don't have to engage with God in what He thinks that He has on the page. We don't need to be outside of it to understand Him. We don't have to have art pieces to understand Him. There's no need to be in the church because He has experienced that through Scripture, and my heart stirs that. And if my heart stirs that, I'm not surprised that Paul would. Yeah. Yes, I'm. I'm not sure I'm following everything you're saying. I do agree that that there is that the scriptures have artistic value themselves, and that's a, a fascinating way in which we can learn about the beautiful, and the way I think the scriptures really unpack. They're not only a, a pointer towards the beautiful in terms of a description of them, but they're actually embody. I think some of the things that Kuiper's saying. So I certainly think that's a helpful a helpful point. Yes, sir, Billy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so Billy's talking about this distinction between high art and 
popular art or low art, folk art maybe, um, yeah, that, that have different. And yeah, Kuiper really doesn't think about art in those ways. He seems to really kind of uh, blend the two in many ways. He doesn't, you know, he wants to, I don't think he wants to lose what we might call the lower arts or something. Um, yeah, that's, a, yeah, but you're right. That is sometimes a distinction that's made. Yeah, Tama. Absolutely. That's a big part of his argument, yeah, as, this, as Tam was pointing out, is that art is not simply the domain of the church or of Christians, but actually the Spirit, through common grace, gifts others, even unbelievers, um, with the... I think I think what this this point is is one that's worth looking at. Um, on the third page of the handout, um, under the title "Art in the Church and Outside," I thought this was an interesting uh, point that that Calvin makes, uh, or Calvin Kuiper makes. Um, he says, "If at the hand of experience and history you become persuaded that the highest art instincts." belong to those excellent graces which in spite of sin, by virtue of common grace, and remember common grace is this idea that God has intervened in the life of all humanity um, to restrain evil, um, to give good gifts, not salvific gifts necessarily, but good gifts nonetheless, that he actually holds back human wickedness, um, that he enables human culture to exist, um, that these things don't happen naturally, but they happen because of the grace of God um, in an intentional way by the Spirit in all cultures and all places and times. Um, he says, um, so by virtue of common grace, that these gifts have continued to shine in human nature. If you believe this, then it plainly follows that art can inspire both believers and unbelievers, and that God remains sovereign to impart it in its good pleasure alike to heathen and to Christian nations. I think this is a really important part of Kuiper's argument that, that even though we're saying that art is a gift of the Spirit and that it's uh, supposed to be a recollection of the beauty of the original creation and uh, pointing forward to the beauty of the creation to come, it's not simply the domain of believers, that actually unbelievers can do this, even though they may not fully understand what they're doing or be able to connect the dots. Um, in the way that we might be able to. That, that art, where it exists, where that kind of the beautiful order of the beautiful exists in human creation, it is a gift of the Spirit. Um, he says, this is illustrated uh, by the comparison in early times between Israel and the other nations. I think this is interesting. He goes back to the scriptures to kind of show this. He says, in the question of religion, Israel has not only a larger share, but Israel alone has the truth, right? If you look at the Old Testament, this is the case, that only Israel receives divine revelation from God. Um, 
and all other nations, even the Greeks and the Romans, right? They're remarkable civilizations in some sense, but they are bent beneath the yoke of falsehood, right? They're built upon a false understanding of reality and God and themselves. Christ is not partly of Israel and partly of the nations. No, he is of Israel alone. Salvation is of the Jews. But the building of the temple required the coming of Hiram from a heathen country to Jerusalem, right? Remember that Hiram of Tyre, um, whom Solomon contracted with to bring some of the wood um, for the temple, some of the artistic parts of the temple of God that would be created in 2 Kings, um, or 1 Kings, rather. Um, the building of the temple required the coming of Hiram from a heathen country to Jerusalem. And Solomon, in whom, after all, was found the wisdom of God, right? Solomon was wise. He not only knows that Israel stands behind in architecture and needs help from without, but by his action, he publicly shows that he, as king of the Jews, is in no way ashamed of Hiram's coming, which he realizes as a natural ordinance of God. Which I think is a, it's really fascinating. I think it's a good illustration and there are other places in the scripture you could make this kind of argument that actually um, God, you know, that the glory of the nations is brought into that original temple uh, through Hiram. And actually, if you look to Revelation 21, uh, that same kind of language is used, that the kings of the nations will bring in the glory of their cultures into the new Jerusalem, that all that is truly good and beautiful, um, even if maybe it was originally you know, rooted in something that was not Christian, will be redeemed and will be brought in and made right. And I think that's a really beautiful picture um, of, of what he's talking about here, that these artistic gifts are not distributed only um, to believers, but also to unbelievers, and that there is something that, that we can be thankful about that, um, about the way in which beauty exists even outside of the church. So Calvinism, on the ground both of scriptures and of history, has arrived at the confession that wherever the sanctuary discloses itself, all unbelieving nations stand outside. So within the, the realm of religion and what is um, actually true about God, all the unbelieving nations stand outside, but that nevertheless in their secular history, they are called by God to a special vocation and formed by their very existence an indispensable link in the long chain of phenomena. I think that's a, a fascinating way to think about the, the task of artistic creation, right? If you're an artist today um, who is doing visual art or architectural art or sculpture, like you're relying on people who didn't love Jesus, right? Know about Jesus, pagan societies, right? Greek and Roman civilization, you know, Egyptians, I mean, whatever it might be, right? There's no way you can be an artist today and just say, well, I just, all the things that I know how to do and the things I believe about beauty, they just come straight from my own mind or straight from reading the scriptures or whatever. No, you're building on a tradition that has existed broadly across many cultures. And many of those cultures were not distinctively Christian or were not Christian at all, right? But he's saying that, that these, even these nations are called by God to a special vocation. Yes, they don't have truth in the, the way that we do. They don't have revelation salvifically. But these nations form by their very existence an indispensable link in the long chain of phenomena, right? We need them. We need Greek and Roman literature. We need uh, 
those that have gone before us in order to create the beautiful today. Every utterance of human life requires a special disposition in blood and descent, right? We're all dependent upon someone else. We're all dependent on the common grace of the Spirit as it's worked throughout human history. And proper adaptations of lot and incident as well as natural environment and climatic effects are to contribute to its development. I just, I love the way that he puts that because it gives this picture of art being, it's not just this individual thing that I'm over here making my art. Like we're all in this together, you know? We're all working together to create and pursue this order of the beautiful that he talks about to um, have this mystical um, remembrance of what was and what will be. Um, this enchantment that he taught, like this is all something, and even because of common grace, because of the way that the Spirit is at work, not only in the church, but even outside of it, this is something that, that even people don't realize that they're part of this project, they are, that God is going to redeem the works of their hands and, and make it um, beautiful in, in a way that, that, that the particular artist couldn't have imagined. I think that's a really fascinating way to think about um, art. I want to close just with this final example. So on the back page, he talks about painting as a direct sort of illustration of what he is describing. Um, and the reason he talks about painting is because he's Dutch, right? And what happened after the Reformation artistically in the Netherlands where it comes to painting? Who are some of the painters that we think about? Rembrandt, right? Who else? Vermeer, right? Was it Bruegel the Elder? Is that his name, right? Uh, I mean, if you, if you go back, you study the history of art, you'll see in the 16th and 17th century, there is an, an amazing sort of renaissance, not renaissance, an amazing sort of new thing that happens um, in the Netherlands in particular. Um, and, and with the artistic expression of painting, they're still acknowledged one of the, you know, the golden ages of of painting in the history of painting in the human race is the Netherlands in the 16th and 17th century. And what Kuiper's going to argue is that that wasn't just an accidental thing. Actually, it was connected to what was happening theologically um, and in terms of the, in the way that Christian faith was being worked out in that place at that time. So here's what he says. As regards painting, just recall the productions of Dutch art by brush and etching needle in the 16th and 17th century. Rembrandt's name alone is here sufficient to summon a whole world of art treasures before your mind's eye. The museums of every country and continent still vie with each other to the utmost in their effort to obtain some specimen of his work. And even in our days, the masters from all over the world are still borrowing their most effective motives and their best art tendencies from what at that time demanded the world's admiration as an entirely new school of painting. And it's true, if you go to a museum and you see paintings from this period, they're utterly different than paintings even 100 or 200 years before produced in other parts of the world. Something new was happening in the Netherlands at that time. <clears throat> of course, this does not say that all these painters were personally staunch Calvinists. He's not necessarily arguing that, right? He's not just saying, well, Rembrandt was a five-point Calvinist and that's why he made the art that he made, or Vermeer or whoever. No, he says, but such influences do not merely operate personally, but put their impress upon surroundings and society, upon the world of perceptions, of representation, and of thought. And as a result of these various impressions, an art school makes an appearance. 
And taken in this sense, the antithesis between the past and the present in the school of Dutch art is unmistakable, right? He's saying something happened culturally that enabled Rembrandt to exist and Vermeer to exist and other Dutch artists at that time to exist. Even if they weren't particular Calvinists themselves, their culture changed through Calvinism. Before this period, no account was taken of the people. They were only considered worthy of notice who were superior to the common man, the high world of the church and of the priests, of knights and princes. But since then, the people had come of age and under the auspices of Calvinism, the art of painting, prophetic of a democratic life of later times, was the first to proclaim the people's maturity. So all of a sudden, the common people mattered in a different way because of the Protestant uh, Reformation. The family ceased to just be an annex to the church and was asserted in its standing of its independent significance. By light of common grace, it was seen that the non-churchly life was also possessed of high importance and of an all-sided art motive. Having been overshadowed for many centuries by class distinction, the common life of man came out of its hiding place like a new world. In all its sober reality, it was the broad emancipation of our ordinary earthly life and the instinct for liberty, which thereby captured the our heart of the nations and inspired them with delight in the enjoyment of treasures so long blindly neglected. And that's what you see in that new Dutch school in the 16th, 17th century. You see pictures, portraits of poor people, right? Of a family around a dinner table. And that was profoundly different than anything that happened. Like nobody in the 8th century thought about painting a family eating dinner together. It's a normal family, right? That was not a thing that you did. It was a totally new thing. Nobody, I mean, in the 16th, 17th century, you see people are now painting a bowl of fruit, right? And that this is something that's like matters. And what Calvinists or Kuiper is saying is that that's, that's a, that happened because of the Protestant Reformation, because of the restoration of normal life, that normal life actually is significant. You don't have to be a king or a priest or be fighting a battle or, you know, doing some kind of miracle in order for it to be recorded artistically. Actually, a normal everyday life can be beautiful because all of life matters to God and because every person has dignity being made in his image. He says, It has frequently been remarked, moreover, that the idea of election by free grace has contributed not a little toward interesting art and the hidden importance of what was seemingly small and insignificant. Right? If a common man to whom the world pays no special attention is actually valued and even chosen by God, as one of his elect right before all creation. That man over there, that poor man, this must lead the art, artist also to find a motive for his artistic studies and what is common and of everyday occurrence, to pay attention to the emotions and the issues of the human heart in it, to grasp with his artistic instinct their ideal impulse, and lastly by his pencil to interpret the world for the world at last, the precious discovery he has made. What he's saying is that because of the Protestant Reformation, all of life began to matter. All human emotion began to matter in a new way. And it created a whole new vista for art to explore about what was truly beautiful. And this did something. This provoked some new thing in that time period. Thus far, the artist had only traced upon his canvas the idealized figures of prophets and apostles, of saints and priests. But now, however, when he saw how God had chosen the porter... And the wage earner for himself, he found interest not only in the head, the figure, and the entire personality of the man of the people, but began to reproduce the human expression of every rank and station. 
And if thus far the eyes of all had been fixed constantly and solely upon the sufferings of the man of sorrows, this is an interesting point. It's really kind of subversive that he makes here. He basically says, until this point, you look to Jesus' suffering to understand suffering totally, right? Because that was the ideal. That was the elevated thing. But some now began to understand that there was a mystical suffering also in the general woe of man, revealing hitherto unmeasured depths of the human heart and enabling us thereby to fathom much better the still deeper depths of the mysterious agonies of Golgotha. He says basically there's something when, when artists really began to think that human suffering mattered, even just quote-unquote normal human suffering, and they began to, re- to depict that and to wrestle with that, that actually that gave us even more insight and understanding into the sufferings of Christ, which is, I think, a fascinating argument. All right, we've got to wrap up. It's 1017, but hopefully this has been interesting for you. I think it's a really provocative chapter and really helpful as we think about the purpose of art, the way that art is is really rooted in what we believe to be true about God in this world. encourage you to continue to think about these things. Let's stand and pray together. Father, we give you thanks. We thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for this beautiful world you've made. We pray, Father, even this room, I know that there are men and women who are seeking to use with intention their artistic gifts for your glory. And I pray you enable them by your spirit, Father, that you indwell them to do what Calvin is talking about here, to search for the beautiful, uh, the beauty of the original creation, to know the ways that it's been marred by our sin, and to know also to search out those um, remnants of the glory that is to come. I pray, Father, that by your spirit we would do this together, that all the glory of the nations might be brought into the city in which your son will dwell. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.